May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Excuse me. What's with this gospel this morning? Really? It's Thanksgiving week. Stores are already filled with holiday music, the aromas of the season, and invitations to spend your money on items you didn't even know you needed. And we, the clergy, are exhausted from several days of diocesan convention in Hannibal. So you'd think we'd catch a break and get a comfortable lesson from Scripture today. One that isn't too challenging, one that makes us feel really good, and one that's short. <laughs> but no! Yet again, we're talking about stewardship. Yet again, it's about what we do with our money. And yet again, you might be thinking it's just an opportunity for Mike and me to again pick your pockets. You know, after a month of sermons, letters, and pledge cards, not to mention last Sunday's in-gathering of our gifts, grappling with a gospel so completely focused on how we use our talents and treasures seems redundant at best and irritating at worst. Perhaps Matthew thinks we're a bit dense and just don't get it. Maybe the editors of our lectionary anticipated those of us who tried to duck the annual stewardship drive or backslide on the pledge already made. For another explanation, it might just be that Jesus has something more to share with us about our work in the world, the mission to which we've been called, and the resources necessary to accomplish both. Today's gospel provides us with an especially interesting and challenging glimpse into God's expectations of us and what we do with the gifts he shared. The parable of the talents is presented in three distinct but related parts. In the first section, we learn that a wealthy master is about to leave on a presumably lengthy trip and therefore summoned three of his slaves and entrusted them with the stewardship of his money while he was away. Now, several points about this are especially noteworthy. First, the talents were not equally distributed. One received five, another two, and yet another one. It seems reasonable, I think, for us to assume that the master recognized that these three slaves had different abilities when it came to stewarding money. Two of them, he thought, could do it reasonably well, and hence they received the most talents. But even at the earliest stages of this parable, it's clear the master was concerned about the one slave who perhaps didn't manage things terribly well, and so gave him only a single talent. The second feature of this parable is the incredible amount of money that's involved. A single talent, the one given to the third slave, was the equivalent to the total earnings of a day laborer for 15 years. And the five talents and two talents respectively given to the other slaves 
were more than they could possibly have earned in an entire lifetime. But even more interesting than the amount of money entrusted to these three slaves is the fact that the master provides them with no direction, no guidance. He simply says, take care of them. The next section of our parable describes what each of the slaves did with the money entrusted to them. No doubt, the first two took some significant risks and doubled the value of their money. On the other hand, the third slave played it safe and buried the money in the ground. He didn't lose any money, but he didn't make any either. From his perspective, he probably thought, no harm, no foul. And finally, the parable gives us a detailed accounting of the master's settlement with the slaves when he returns from his travels. He congratulates the first two, gives them even greater responsibility, and invites them to join in the sharing of the master's joy. We're not told precisely what that joy is, but I think we can probably assume it gives them access to everything in the household, including great food and fine wine. But then it came time to settle with the third slave, who had earlier concluded that his master was a harsh man, and therefore, the safer strategy was to do nothing that would possibly offend him. The slave confessed that he had buried the talent out of fear, specifically the fear that the master's talents were accrued from work that was not his own, essentially that they were stolen. But while the master doesn't dispute the fact that he has reaped what he did not sow, the master absolutely rejects the accusation of being harsh. In fact, judging from the way he handled the other two slaves, the master was anything but. The master was a man of incredible generosity. Nevertheless, he is especially harsh when it comes to this particular slave, labeling him as wicked, lazy, for not at least investing the money with local bankers. More to the point, the master is furious because the slave behaved out of fear. And for that, he'll be forced to return the original talent, not receive anything more, and be cast out of the household into the dark world. Not unlike the gospel lessons from these past several weeks, Parable of the Talents is highly allegorical. That is, its characters are intended to represent something else. In today's case, the master is obviously to be understood as God. The slaves as disciples, the talents as the gifts each follower of Jesus receives, and the joy to be what we are to experience in God's kingdom. And as in any allegory, the story rings true and has meaning because it mirrors your experience and mine. God's gift to the world and us are truly extravagant beyond measure. Simply look outside at this gorgeous morning. Listen to this gorgeous music. Engage in the warm smiles with each other. God's gifts are extraordinary. But while they're abundant, 
They are not equally distributed. The reality of our lives is that some of us have been privileged with rich intellects and education, others with the ability to build and repair, and still others with charitable hearts and a servant's hands. However, the point of the parable is to challenge us to use whatever gifts we've been granted for the glory of the God who gave them. As it did for the two faithful stewards, the use of those gifts requires investment, and a risky investment at that. It requires the active pursuit of new and wondrous ways to use our talents. And it requires that we give everything, that we give our all. Playing it safe, whether as individuals or as a congregation, hoarding our gifts, as the third servant did, gives nothing back either to God or to those whom God would have us serve. Albeit in a quite different context, I'm reminded of Theodore Roosevelt's similar challenge. Far better it is to dare mighty things, he asserts, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Dear friends, if you haven't sensed it before, today's gospel makes it unambiguously clear that the Church of the Holy Communion is on missional notice. Regardless of the extent of the gifts with which we've been blessed, we're summoned to put them to use. They're to be invested in the care of the most vulnerable among us. They're to be distributed to those struggling for racial, political, and economic justice. And they're to be shared in the work of the church, this congregation, and among all who would follow in the steps of Jesus. To be sure, not every investment will yield substantial rewards for us any more than they do for hedge fund bankers on Wall Street. Some of the best of our efforts will meet insurmountable resistance. Some of the best of our plans will get derailed. But today, Jesus reminds us that fear should not and must not ever be allowed to inhibit the pursuit of the gospel and the enactment of God's kingdom. Fear must never be allowed to dampen our creativity and the engagement of the world around us. And fear must never, never constrain our voice. For that we give thanks.